0: All right, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 1, we're going to be starting at verse 26 today. Well, we've been working through this critical section, this significant section of Scripture where Paul is correcting the Corinthians view of the gospel This message of Christ and him crucified by which God draws people to himself and saves them and changes them. And to really get to the heart of this and to illustrate and and show the error that Paul is correcting among the Corinthians, let me offer an illustration that is perhaps a bit silly and simplified, but I think gets the point across. So when you go to buy a toy or a tool, um, and those of you who are parents know this clear, know this very well, uh, they come, there's two, uh, sorry, a toy or a tool that has or requires batteries. There are two options, right? You can either get it batteries included, batteries not included. And what a joy it is to get it batteries included, right? You don't have to go anywhere else. You don't have to go buy batteries, which are expensive. The power is already there. Everything you need is already there in that toy, in that tool. It works. Well, the gospel is kind of like that. Batteries included. Batteries supplied. The message of Christ and him crucified is not just a message. It's also the means. It's not just a toy or a tool that... If you can get it to work right, if you can figure out how to supply power, it'll work. No, it has power built in by design. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 10 that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is, as the word of Christ, the gospel goes out, it produces saving faith. God calls people to himself and saves them and changes them as the gospel is proclaimed as we share it, explain it, communicate it, there is power in the message itself as God's spirit works through it. But the Corinthians were tempted to think that the gospel is like those toys and tools that say batteries not included. It wasn't that they didn't believe the gospel message was true. They did. They just didn't think it was effective, or effective enough, or powerful enough, sufficient enough. They thought they needed to figure out how to make it work, to go somewhere else, to look elsewhere for power. And so they tried finding eloquent speakers to communicate it, who could draw a crowd. They tried to doctor it up and make it sound like high and wise, like the philosophers of the day. Or they tried to remove the sharp edges or the, the offensiveness, the foolishness of the gospel so that it would appeal to larger masses. As I've said repeatedly, they tended to think that the gospel and God himself needed some PR help. And So what does Paul say? Well, let me recap what we covered last week, starting at verse 20, and then we'll get into our section today. So Paul is speaking into this situation. He says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So in other words, God's way of working, God's purpose, isn't to use the greatness of human wisdom and achievement to draw people to himself and save them. No, his purpose is to use a a message that seems foolish and weak, perhaps even offensive, to draw people to himself and save save them. And the reason, as we've begun to see and as we'll get into more today, is so that all glory and credit and power are clearly seen to be his and not ours, not mankind's. So this is what Paul has just said, that God works in ways, God uses things that seem foolish and weak and silly in the eyes of the world to save. This is true of the gospel message itself. Now Paul is going to give another illustration of God working in this way, of God using what appears foolish and weak, and that is the Corinthians themselves. Exhibit A, that God uses what is unimpressive, you guys. <laughs> it's actually kind of hilarious. This is the example Paul gives of how God works using the unimpressive. Look at yourselves. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, i.e., consider, consider your status, your, your place in the world, when you were called by God. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful according to worldly standards. Not many were of noble birth. You guys weren't the who's who in Corinth. Most people probably didn't know who you were. But, going on, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, nobodies, to bring to nothing things that are. Now, notice a couple things here. First of all, this isn't just Paul making an observation about how the church in Corinth tended to be, but this is, you know, probably a rare case. No, this is Paul saying, this is how God intentionally works. God chose what is foolish, this is not random chance that you turned out like this. It is exactly God's purpose to create a people for himself who are not necessarily all that impressive in the eyes of the world. At least that's not what draws them together. Secondly, consider their criteria here. Not many of you are wise, powerful, of noble birth, so the criteria for, for your calling, for your belonging to God, for your belonging to God's people, is not any of these things, It's not any of the criteria that the world uses for judging greatness, judging acceptability, judging worth. So, I mean, just think through the list of these things. What does our world use to judge your worth? Possessing money. And Wealth, simply the ability to earn a middle-class wage, this gives you no greater recognition or value at the foot of the cross or in the church. The ability to be self-sufficient and not rely on others, this gives you no greater recognition or value at the foot of the cross or in the church. Possessing power and influence and respect whether in your community, in your church, in your school, in your workplace, this gives you no greater recognition or value at the foot of the cross, or in the church. Being of noble birth, having coming from some great family or respectable family or Christian family or wealthy family, family gives you no greater recognition or value at the foot of the cross or the church. Having great intellectual abilities or great skills and abilities. Being a reader and a deep thinker just gives you no greater recognition or value at the foot of the cross or in the church. Knowing Christian culture, being able to talk and and act and look like Christians typically act gives you no greater recognition or value at the foot of the cross or in the church. And likewise, having a respectable past, devoid of any major sins or shortcomings, gives you no greater recognition or value at the foot of the cross or in the church. You don't need to bring any of these achievements, these badges, these accomplishments to the table with God. In fact, you can't. As one of our songs, our hymns says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. One commentator, Gordon Fee, puts it like this The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Not a single thing that any of us possesses will advantage him or her before the living God not brilliance, clout, achievement, money, or prestige. By choosing the lowly Corinthians, God declared that he has forever ruled out every imaginable human system of gaining his favor. It is all, trust him completely, or nothing. We cling to Christ and him crucified alone. That is our trust, that is our hope, that is our boast, as we'll see. Now, on a personal level, this should be a great comfort to you. Whoever you are, whatever position in life you find yourself to be in, you don't have to hold on to any achievement or any greatness. You don't have to achieve anything in the future. You don't have to maintain any achievement or position in the past to be a good part of God's people. All of the statuses and labels and identities that the world expects of you or that you expect of yourself are powerless before the throne of God. All that matters is that you come with true faith in Jesus, and true repentance for your sins. Uh, To put it another way, the the greatest love and favor and affection in the world cannot be bought. It's not er yours because you earned it. You can't. It is yours because you need it. And it is given freely to all who would come. So this should be a great comfort to us. It should keep us appropriately humble as well. But on a church-wide level, this should inform how we welcome and receive and, and love and even pursue those in our midst and those in our community right? Are we more eager and apt to welcome and love those who look like us, who think like us, who vote like us, who those who are easy to love, those who are self-sufficient and aren't going to be a great drain on our energy? Do we subtly communicate by the way we speak, by the way we act, by the things we do, that if you're in this demographic or this income bracket or of this ability with this kind of past or these kinds of struggles, then this is the church for you. If not, you think of uh, Jesus in, in Matthew 5 where he looks at the crowd and he says, blessed are the, and he goes through this long list, the poor in spirit, the, the meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. These were all of the people that were not valued by the world. These were the weak and the foolish, the powerless. And politically speaking, this cuts both ways. You don't care for, you don't naturally care for all of these weak and foolish in our world simply by being politically conservative or politically progressive. This happens through the Spirit of God working in your heart, that you welcome and love the weak and the foolish. And so as a church, we are to welcome those who the world deems foolish and weak and low and despised the nobodies, primarily because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Yeah. Now, at the same time, we need to clarify a little bit the other way as well. Um, not many of you doesn't mean that you can't come to Jesus if you tend to have respect or wealth or influence or power in the world. And this has become common in our society today in Instead of making much of your greatness, or your power, or your social status, there is a tendency to make much of your weakness, and your smallness, of the ways you've been marginalized and oppressed. Now, Christianity has a lot to say about how we care for and welcome those who have been marginalized and oppressed. We just saw that. But what Christianity does not say is your identity, And your worth are in the ways you've been marginalized or oppressed. And so make much of that. Bring that before God. No, in reality, there is in fact nothing different. There is no difference between making much of your power and making much of your weakness. Before God, as an attempt to win God's favor and be a part of his family, both miss the point. We bring nothing before God except our sin. All of our false comforts, our false idols, our false gods must go. One of the great wonders of the gospel, and this was true in Paul's day and is still true today, is that it brings together a diverse group of people. Because the only ground of unity is our common boast and confidence in the undeserved grace of God. Everyone must come humbly before God, holding on to nothing else, not bringing anything to get ahead, but trusting solely in God and what he's done for us in Jesus. Now, there are some purpose statements in verses 27 through 28 that we haven't really considered yet, but we must. Why is God doing this? Why is God choosing the foolish, weak, low, and despised in the world? Look at what it says. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are So the big idea here is that God and his valuing of things, his perspective, his word, his promises, win out in the end. Right? No matter how it seems now, no matter how it might seem like God is not winning right now and his people are not vindicated right now, he will win out in the end. God and his people will be vindicated, will not finally be ashamed will not finally be weak and foolish. In in the folly of the gospel message, in the folly of a, a church of nobodies, of unimpressive people, God is not actually succumbing to the world and just taking second best and being like, well, I guess I'll take them. No, God is winning. God is accomplishing his purposes perfectly. This is how God wins. And what this means for us now is that we hold on to this hope. We hold on to this hope that it is better, it is worth trusting in Jesus. That even in the midst of suffering and weakness and and confusion and struggle, it is better to belong to God than be loved by the world. That glory and vindication later in his presence is better than glory and and vindication now in the presence of others. But we have to remember this, that that day is not now. And so we have to restrain from becoming triumphalistic in this. That is, um, we have to refrain from taking this hope and turning it into a reason for pride and, and haughtiness and demanding victory and respect now from everyone. No, this hope should make us confident, yes, and assured, yes, but patient. As far as we know, we'll continue to suffer and struggle until the day we die or Christ returns. So this is part of what God is doing. But there's an even deeper purpose at work in what God is doing even at work in our weakness and our insignificance. So verses 29 through 31 act as the conclusion to what we've looked at the last few weeks. They, they sum up God's grand purpose in this. So I'm going to read them and then we'll unpack these awesome verses. Verse 29. So that, so you get a purpose statement there. This and this everything's leading up to this. This is why God. Worked through a gospel that seems foolish and weak. Why God chose a people that are unimpressive. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast. In the Lord. So you get the same thing twice there. Two complementary phrases, right? God's purposes in how and whom He saves. So, A, to eliminate all human centered boasting in the presence of God, all making much of self. And then B, to direct all boasting to the Lord, making much of God. Now, you've probably noticed this is the title of our sermon series Boasting in the Lord. Uh, This idea is central to the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, um, and to a smaller extent, the rest of Corinthians as well. But I want to propose even further that this idea of boasting in the Lord is a key to understanding all of Scripture and a key to understanding what God is up to in the world. So let me unpack it a bit. First of all, what does it mean to boast? One commentator says this word can mean to take pride in, to glory in, uh, but at times, and especially here, it comes very close to the concept of trusting in, putting one's full confidence in. And so what God has been up to from the beginning of the world, and what God is still up to, is creating people who boast in, take pride in, glory in, put their trust and full confidence in Him. Uh, We can pull in other terms from Scripture, rejoice in Him, delight in Him, make much of Him, love Him, treasure Him above all else. And the greatest, the ultimate means that God uses to accomplish this is the cross. That's what verse 30 and 31 say. Because of Him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Um, what He's saying there is that the cross is God's wisdom in action, the very essence of God's wisdom and power. It's different from the world's wisdom, it looks different, but it accomplishes what God intends and it brings our righteousness, that is, our justification, rightness in His sight, it brings our sanctification, our growth in godly character. And a redemption. And what these verses say very clearly as verse 31 goes on so that as it is written let the one who boasts what these verses say very clearly is that this salvation this our coming being reconciled to God and coming back in relationship with him is so that is for the end of our boasting in the Lord. It is not merely to save us. Phew, got that out of the way. No, it is to conform you and I into someone who makes much of God. That is what God is up to in your life, in my life, in the lives of many others. Now, I said this is a key to understanding all of Scripture, so I want to go a few other places in Scripture and show you this same idea. So, Jeremiah twenty-nine or Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 is the passage that Paul is actually quoting from here. In Isaiah 48, um, God calls out his people for being obstinate and faithless. And yet he says he's going to defer his anger. He's not going to destroy them for their sins. And the reason, Isaiah 48, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Moving to the New Testament. Um, If you read through Ephesians 1, you get this repeated refrain, this grand purpose of God. And it is all about God being seen to be great and being praised for his greatness, especially in the grace given in Jesus. So, starting at the end of verse 4, "...in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ." according to the purpose of His will. And here's the first one, to the praise of His glorious grace. Jumping ahead to verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Here's the purpose. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And one more, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, The gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we are to acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, Paul walks through basically the whole story of salvation and says it is all to the praise of the glory of God's grace. That's not just the happenstance result that, oh, we we praise God. That's what God was intending from the very beginning to lead us to praise his glory. And then you go to the book of Revelation and you get a picture after picture after picture of God's people doing just this, right? In God's presence, God's people are not like, all right, we made it. Let's get on with life. Let's get on with our own plans. God's people are compelled to give praise to God and the glory of his grace. They can't help but do anything else. Now, one thing that we need to be very clear about in this is that this boasting that God is producing in us and God is calling us to is not a forced, begrudging, oh, I ought to give praise to God, so I guess I should do that. No. God is not after our half-hearted, begrudging praise and worship. I would say that such an idea is even a contradiction. Goes against, is completely foreign to Scripture. God is after our joyful, willing, boasting, and making much of Him because we've found Him to be greater than anything else. We've found Him to be a treasure worth selling everything else to gain, found Him to be a better ruler of our lives than ourselves. I mean, if that's not the case, using the words boasting and rejoicing and delighting and loving don't really make much sense. Those are all things that we do willingly. Right? Those are all things that involve our hearts, not just our actions. And they're words and ideas that God gives us to teach us what he is doing and what he is calling us to. Um, C.S. Lewis originally had trouble with the idea that God commands people to praise him and make much of him. Then he realized a few things. One of them, he writes, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The Scottish Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We shall then know And we can even now know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. I mentioned it last week as well, but John Piper famously summarizes this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That in commanding us to glorify and praise and make much and boast in him, God is also concerned about our joy and our satisfaction, about us finding peace and rest in Him. It's not making joy a God that we just pursue in any and all means. It is keeping God as God and making much of Him and in that finding our greatest joy. So what do we do with this? For one, it should be very clear that what God is after and what we are called to is not merely going through the motions of church or religion. Is not merely just obeying God's commands so that we feel better about ourselves. Or using the cross to get rid of our guilt and shame. Don't get me wrong, the cross does that and continue to come to the cross for that. But what God is after, what we are called to, what we are created for, is to behold the glory, that, that means the, the weightiness, the perfections of God, and to continue to behold Him, to, to behold His great power and authority and worth, his perfect justice and holiness, his love, his tenderness, his gentleness, his compassion, his kindness, the perfection of his beauty, to behold him and know that he's near and with us, hold on to his promises. I like to think of attempting to behold God as something like hiking up into the mountains if you've, if you've ever gone into, on a hike where there's any sort of elevation change, at the beginning, you can kind of see what you're getting into, and you kind of think that you can see most of where you're going, and you see kind of a peak, and you're like, all right, that's where we're going. But then you get up there, and it like opens up, and you see all of these vista upon vista and canyons and all these other peaks, and you see them from different angles, and it's just like, there's so much more than you realized at the beginning. So much more glory and wonder than you realized at first. So it is with beholding God. But instead of hiking up into the mountains, we primarily behold God through reading and studying His Word, by gathering with His people and and encouraging and strengthening and exhorting one another on, by communing with God in prayer, by waiting expectantly for God's kingdom to come. And I would say, even in this, in the times that we find ourselves challenged by God's Word or confused by God's will, when we find God's ways and thoughts higher than ours and different than ours, we take that an opportunity to full, more fully press in, to let God and His Word be above ourselves rather than put ourselves above it. To let ourselves be challenged and find God to be greater, better than we expected. And as we do this, we boast. We make much of, we trust and delight ourselves in Him. In suffering, this might mean just clinging to Him with Every ounce of strength we got, waiting on him in weakness, in loss, in frustration. This might mean seeking to be content in him in what he has ordained, being content in his love and his presence. In times of joy and celebration, when things are going well, this means not idolizing the good in our lives. Continuing to hold on to God as our greatest treasure. And in sin and guilt, this might mean clinging to the cross and rejoicing in the grace that is ours in Jesus. Finding our identity in that. So fight to keep God as your greatest treasure. In both easy and difficult times, when tempted to be led astray both by pleasures, and by pains. Know that boasting in the Lord will always be worth it, and will not. you will not be ashamed in that. We're going to boast in the Lord together as we take communion now. This is a tangibly, tangible and visible way that we make much of God. We put our trust in Him. We find Him to be sufficient. If you have put your trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, this is the time to to rejoice in that and to remember that. If you're not sure what communion is about, or not sure if you have trusted in Christ, one one of the pastors would love to meet with you and talk to you about that. But let's pray, and then we'll take communion together.